following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Last week we looked at God the Father. We talked about God as the Father of Israel. We talked about God as the Father of Jesus. And then we talked about how we get to call God our Father. In fact, we get to call Him Abba, Father, which is that intimate, close, dear relationship of a father to a child. That's how close we get to God the Father. Because of Jesus, we get to call God Abba, Father, just as Jesus called God Abba, Father. That intimacy and proximity that we get to have with God. And then we finished with Rembrandt's painting. Remember that? And uh, that seemed to strike a chord with a lot of you. It's great to have an image, isn't it? And especially in such a well-known passage of the Bible, like the prodigal son, just great to have a, something visual that we can engage with and focus on. And looking at the way that Jesus told that story, his, Jesus' greatest exposition of who God the Father was, focused on God as an elderly man running towards his lost son. Uh, and this father who just lays his hands on our shoulders, the two hands of strength and compassion, and how each of us have those two hands of God resting on our shoulders continually and we live we're invited to live within the embrace the loving embrace of god the father so there's a lot more of course that we could say about god the father but that was just an overview of who the father is and so today we move on now to the second sentence in the apostles creed uh, and the sentence is i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord now, the Apostles' Creed then goes on to talk a lot more about Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the main theme of the Apostles' Creed. As you read it through, you'll see that a lot of it is taken up with Jesus. His life and his, his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his coming again and so on. And that, to be honest, reflects the time that the Apostles' Creed was written. In those early centuries of the church, there was a lot of debate around the identity of Jesus and whether it was even possible for him to be divine and human at the same time. All of that was swirling around. So the Apostles' Creed uh, has a huge focus on the identity of Jesus. So we are going to do two weeks on Jesus, two weeks looking at Jesus. Today, we will look at the person of Jesus, uh, asking the question, who is Jesus? And next week, we will look at the work of Jesus, the work of Christ, focusing more on his life and death and resurrection. Uh, so first off, I want to just do a quick little mental exercise here. I, and you might want to close your eyes for this if you want to, but I want you to think about Jesus. I just want you to think about Jesus and think about the first image or thought that comes into your head when you think about Jesus. As soon as I say that word, as soon as you think about Jesus, what is the first image? What is the first picture? Anyone want to call anything out? The cross. Yep. What was it back there? Perfect. Yep. Anything? The Savior? Yeah, anything else that we see? What do you see when you picture Jesus? The Lamb? Did you say, Jen? Oh, man, yeah. The man Jesus, yeah. And I think that's probably most of us. It, it, in some way, we picture the life of Jesus. You might picture, might picture the baby in the manger, uh, or Jesus calming the seas, or walking on the water. It's interesting to think about what our first thought is when we think of Jesus. The cross is certainly a strong one, strong image of Jesus that a lot of us think. I often just can't help thinking of him in a white robe. 
for some reason, like whatever I think about Jesus, he's wearing a white robe. It's strange. I just can't, can't get away from the white robe. But you might think of him teaching his disciples. You might think of him being raised from the dead or ascending back to heaven. But I think, as Jan said, most of the time when we think about Jesus, we tend to think about his earthly life, some dimension of his earthly life between his birth in Bethlehem and his resurrection or his ascension back to heaven, something in there. And of course, that's completely understandable and that's good and that's right because that's what the Gospels are full of. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is the story of the life of Jesus. But today I want us to consider the fact that that entire the life of Jesus is only a blip in the whole eternal existence of Jesus. It's a very important blip. Yes, I don't mean to minimize the life of Jesus. It is utterly central to our faith. But just temporally speaking, the life of Jesus is far more than just his earthly life. His 33, 34 years, most people believe that he spent living on this earth is only a speck in the context of his eternal existence. So today I want to look not at the speck, not at the earthly life. We'll look at that next week when we look at the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and what all that means. Today I want to look at the eternity of Jesus. I want to look not at the earthly life of Jesus, but at the heavenly life of Jesus. I want to look not at the temporal time that he walked this earth, but the eternal existence he had before and during and after that. So my hope is that we come away today with a much bigger, broader view of the Son of God, this huge canvas upon which we paint, hopefully a huge picture of the Son of God. And then I hope that becomes a much better backdrop to next week, talking about the specifics of his life and his death and his resurrection. So to do all this, we're going to go to one passage in the Bible. Last week, we looked at several and we bounced around quite a bit. Today, we're going to anchor ourselves in one passage in Colossians chapter 1. So while you're turning over there, this is one of the passages that will be in your daily readings over the next week, those of you that are tracking through the booklet. So you'll come to this one in the course of the week. You'll be able to spend some more time meditating on it, reflecting on it. Uh, But Colossians 1 verse 15, and many people believe, by the way, that this particular part of the Bible may have been an early Christian hymn. It may have operated independently as an early Christian worship song. And it's possible that Paul, the Apostle Paul, plucked it out of being a worship song and plonked it into his letter to the Colossians. Um, It's only a theory, but this passage has a beautiful, lyrical, poetic, hymn-like quality about it, a hymn to Christ. So we're just going to look at three verses in Colossians 1, verse 15, 16, and 17. Let me read that to you. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so broadly speaking, that passage, it has a past and a present and a future dimension to it. And that's the trajectory we'll follow. Looking at the past existence of Jesus, the present existence of Jesus, the future existence of Jesus. So if we start in the past, the question is, when did Jesus' life begin? When did the life of the Son of God actually start? Uh, Probably most of us in this room have had the experience of Jehovah's Witnesses coming to the door. 
Everyone had that experience. Everyone had a bit of a chat to them at times. If you are a Jehovah's Witness here this morning, you are welcome here. We're glad that you are here. And this next bit, I really do say with genuine respect because they really are very nice people to engage with. And sometimes I've chatted to them more and sometimes less. And I used to work with a Jehovah's Witness woman, uh, not at Shaw Community Church, just in case you're wondering, uh, but previous employment. And sooner or later, if you get into conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, sooner or later, you get to this passage. This is a favorite of theirs. And you can very much feel talking to a Jehovah's Witness person. Uh, like a lot of what we believe is very, very similar. It feels like we're absolutely saying the same thing. You talk about God, you talk about life and faith and the Bible and Christian living. It, it all sounds exactly like we're saying the same thing. But then you get to this passage, and they love this passage because of verse 15 and because of one particular word in verse 15, which is the word firstborn. And Jehovah's Witnesses will go to that word and they will say, there you go. What that means is that Jesus is a created being. So the fact that he's called the firstborn means that he was born at a certain period of time. In other words, there was a time when Jesus did not exist. And then when there was a time when God brought him forth, created Jesus. And so he may be a God-like figure. He may be a deity. He may be divine, but he is not fully God. He cannot be fully God because he was created by God. So he might be the first of all creation, the angelic realm and so on, but he can't fully be God because God made him. And that's a pretty key distinction. That's a pretty fundamental difference between a Jehovah's Witness view and an Orthodox Christian view of Jesus. And so we need to look at that word firstborn a little bit more closely and understand what it means. Most of the time in the Bible, when the word firstborn is used, it's just used of the oldest child in a family. Time and time and time again, you read, so-and-so is the firstborn, so-and-so. It's just used of the, the oldest natural-born child. But as you look at the usage, there are times in the Bible where firstborn does not mean first in time. It means first in rank. That's the distinction. There are times in the Bible when firstborn does not mean first chronologically, first in time. It means first in rank. So, for example, in Jeremiah 31, God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. But Ephraim wasn't the oldest child. He wasn't literally the firstborn son. He was the younger brother of Manasseh. And their father blessed these boys, and his blessing rested on Ephraim. Ephraim was the more favored of the two. He became more prominent. He had a greater role in the biblical story to the point where, where God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Even though he wasn't first in time, he was first in rank. He was first in position, if you like, preeminent over his brother. In the same way, Psalm 89, God says about David, he is my firstborn. He's exalted over the kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't the firstborn either. He wasn't the firstborn son in his family. In fact, he was the youngest child in his family. He had a lot of older brothers. But again, this is not talking about first in time. This is talking about first in rank. So David has risen to a place where he's the great king of Israel, has a prominent role in God's eyes in the biblical story, and therefore God calls him his firstborn son. The emphasis is not that he is born or that he is chronologically first, but that he is exalted. He has a position over 
all other kings of the earth. And the word firstborn can and is used that way in Scripture, especially of Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, that's the way the word firstborn is used, not to describe Jesus being the first in time of many other things or many other brothers, but as the first over all things, as the first in rank. And that's clearly where Paul's going in this passage. That's why later on, you can read on in Colossians 1, he talks about how in everything Jesus has the supremacy, that he's sovereign over all. So when Jesus is called the firstborn, that's what the writers are getting at, that Jesus is preeminent over creation. Not that he's a created being, but that he is sovereign over all. Not that God made him, but that he has the supremacy over all things. Jesus is before everything else, but he doesn't have a beginning. He is preeminent. He is sovereign. He is supreme over everything else. So there's no hint in the Bible that Jesus ever has a starting point that Jesus ever has an origin. He is an eternal being. He's not a created being. This is a fundamental thing to get in place. Jesus' life did not start with his birth in Bethlehem. I think some Christians still default to this. But Jesus' life did not start with his birth in Bethlehem. It started, well, it didn't have a start. He is an eternal being. He is as eternal as God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' existence goes back into eternity past where he has existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit within the being of God that we call the Trinity. So we use the name Jesus to refer to his earthly life. That's a Jewish name given to a Jewish boy. That relates to his 33, 34 years that he spent on this earth. Before that, what do we call him? The Son of God, the eternal Word. John uses that word, word, for Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, if you want to get more technical, theological about it, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, any of those names will do. But Jesus has an eternal existence. He goes back into eternity past with the Father and the Spirit. That's an important part of our theology to get in place. If Jesus was a created being, he would not be fully God. And if he was not fully God, he could not save us. We have to hold to this truth. Jesus is first born, but that means he's supreme, not created. So Jesus is eternal. He goes back into eternity past. And then, staying with the past, Jesus has a role in creating the world. Most of the time, I think when you think about creation, you think about who created the world, most of us default to thinking about the Father. God the Father brought the world into being. God the Father was the creator. And of course, In a sense, that's true. But Paul is very clear here in Colossians 1 that Jesus had an important role in creating the world. He talks about, verse 16, for in him all things were created. So Jesus was there at the beginning and he was involved with God the Father in creating the world. I think one of the most helpful ways I've found to think about this is to think about the idea of speech. Creation, as Genesis 1 recounts it, was brought about through speech. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Significant, I think, that God speaks. He didn't have to do it this way. But he spoke the universe into being. And then interestingly, you get to John chapter 1, and John says, in the beginning was the word. Talking about Jesus tapping back into that idea of speech. And so this is only a metaphor, but I've I've found it helpful to think about God the Father as the speaker 
and Jesus as the word that he's speaking. All part of the same being, part of the same speech act, part of the same person, if you like. But God the Father is the one speaking. Jesus is the word who is spoken out of the very mouth of God, the word that goes forth and then brings creation into being. So when God said, let there be light, the word that he spoke was in fact Jesus. And by the way, who in that analogy would be the Holy Spirit? How do you make space for him in that little metaphor? I think of the Spirit as the breath. And, and that's not too far wrong as far as the, the word ruach, breath, for the Spirit in the Old Testament goes. The Spirit, the breath of God. So God the Father is the speaker. Jesus is the word who has spoken. The Spirit is the breath that comes from the mouth of God, that forms the words that go out to create the world. It's only an analogy. If it's helpful, keep it. If it's not, throw it away. But it's just a way of thinking about the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the act of creation. Creation involves all three persons of the Trinity. And for our purposes today, that includes Jesus. He was there at the beginning, and he was involved in bringing forth the world. Now, Jesus wasn't just involved at the beginning. But look at this uh, phrase in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a great description of what Jesus is doing now. What is Jesus doing right now? When you think about what's he doing now, we sort of think of him in heaven. He's just kicking back with God the Father. He's just sitting at the right hand of God, not doing a whole lot, waiting until God the Father says, now it's time to go back. Jesus is actively working right now. In him, all things hold together. So Jesus, at every moment, is actively working to sustain the world that he's created. Jesus is nurturing the world that the Father and Son and Spirit have created. He is tending it. He is caring for it. He has his arms around the cosmos, in a sense. Jesus is the glue that is constantly holding all things together. He's the hub in the wheel to whom everything in the universe is connected, and he is connected to everything. He is holding all the parts and the pieces of the universe together, and he loves keeping the rhythms and the wheels of creation constantly turning. Our youngest son, Ezra, is two. And one of his favorite words is again. He loves the word again. So if we do something funny, if we pull a funny face or we tickle him, his first response, if he likes it, is to say again. And then we do it again. And he says again. And so we do it again. And he says again. And this could go on and on. Honestly, if we didn't stop it, I'm sure he could go right through the day just on one little thing, activity, a tickle, a funny face, again, 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 again. And it just goes on and on and on. He just loves it. And in a kind of playful, imaginative way, I wonder if that's a, 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 almost a childlike way of thinking about the delight that Jesus takes in bringing about each new day. Now, the Bible says this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And I, I can almost imagine Jesus every morning saying to the sun, again, as the sun comes up, as he just delights in bringing a new, he doesn't get sick of that. It doesn't get old. And every evening saying to the moon, again, and the moon comes up. And to the seasons, again, 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 to the flowers, again, as they bloom. Jesus just loves it. It doesn't get old to him. It's not monotonous to him. Creation is not tedious to Jesus. He loves it. He takes childlike delight in bringing 
every new day into being again, again, again. Because Jesus was involved in making this world. He loves it. Torn apart as it is by sin and our own brokenness, he still loves it. And he just loves breathing new life into the world, bringing about fresh new life within creation, keeping the rhythms of creation going. And constantly you can imagine Jesus saying again, 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 as he keeps the world going. So when you think about Jesus, don't just think about the man on the cross, important though that is. Think about the eternal Son of God who brought the world into being and who every day is holding all things together by his powerful word. And then finally, Jesus stands at the end of creation. And you hear this too in this hymn in Colossians. Verse, at the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. That little word for is really important. What does it mean that all things have been created for Jesus? It means that not only does Jesus stand at the beginning of creation as the one through whom all things were made, not only does he stand in the middle of creation as the one who is holding all things together, but he is the one who stands at the end of creation welcoming creation to himself. It is all for Jesus in the end, and it's all going to return to Jesus in the end. He's welcoming creation to himself because in the end, Jesus will return and he'll fully establish God's kingdom of peace upon this earth. The kingdom's here in part now, but Jesus will return and the peace of Christ will just pervade this world like nothing else. The presence of Christ pervade every square centimeter of creation. The power of God just pervade every inch of the cosmos. And every, the way the Bible describes this, everything will be brought to unity under Christ. At the moment, we don't see everything in unity under Christ. We, th we see things fractured, fragmented, torn apart. But on that day, Jesus will return. Everything will be brought to unity under Christ, and he will fully be Lord of all. He's already reigning. He's already Lord. But on that day, he will exercise that reign fully, completely, directly, over every square inch of the cosmos. His loving rule will extend out over all the earth, everything brought into submission to him, everything brought under the feet of Jesus. That's where creation's heading. To say that creation is for Jesus means it's orientated towards him. It's angled towards him. Jesus stands as the goal of history, the goal of creation, the key to the whole thing. That's where everything is moving towards being brought to unity under the feet of Jesus. So Jesus has this past eternal existence as the second person of the Trinity. He has this present existence holding all things together. And he has this future existence that will go on into eternity future. He will never have an end point. His existence will never terminate. And he will be the one reigning as Lord over the very creation that he helped to make in the beginning. That's a pretty panoramic view, isn't it, of who Jesus is. And I want to encourage you as you pray to Jesus, as you think about Jesus, as you relate to Jesus, to think of him in that broader context, not just the man who lived and died and was raised again, but the eternal word of God who lives from eternity past on into eternity future. He is a cosmic Lord. He is universal in his scope. He stretches the width of the cosmos and the breadth of history, and he is holding all things together. 
Now, the question is, what difference does any of this make for us? What difference does any of this make in our lives? This is, this, if we're not careful, this can be very esoteric, very kind of abstract, lofty theology, but how, where does this come down to ground level? And this is where I think the Apostles' Creed is very helpful. You come back again to that sentence we're looking at. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Now, I love the way that they put, whoever came up with that particular phrasing, that they put our Lord in there, not just the Lord. Jesus is the Lord, and that's what we've been looking at. That's what Colossians 1 talks about, that he is the Lord overall, the Lord of past, present, and future. But the Apostles' Creed doesn't just say he is the Lord. It talks about him being our Lord in a personal sense. We have to make this personal to our own lives. And if we're going to say the words of that creed and mean it, this actually requires a response from us. This requires something from us. To say Jesus is the Lord doesn't require anything. We can confess that. We can worship him. But to say Jesus is our Lord or Jesus is my Lord, suddenly my life is involved. Suddenly I'm implicated. Something, something is required of me. And what is required of me in saying Jesus is my Lord or our Lord is that I bring my life into submission to him. Just as creation is moving towards the day when everything is going to be brought under the feet of Jesus, that's what he asks me to do in the present. That's what he asks you to do in the present, is to bring our lives already, not to wait for that day, but bring our lives now under submission, into submission to Jesus, that we gather up all the parts and pieces of our lives and we bring them under the lordship of Jesus. We gather up everything, every relationship, every facet, every part, every commitment, every social role that we play, we gather it all up and we bring it into submission to the lordship of Jesus. And I found that's easy to do as long as you leave it in a kind of vague realm. That's easy to do if you just leave it in a general kind of sense. And we make general commitments to Jesus as Lord all the time. And it rolls off our tongues. I mean, almost every Sunday, we are standing here singing songs that in one way or another, we confess Jesus as our Lord. We talk about it as our Lord, and we talk about surrendering our lives to God. One of the songs that we sing, we're not doing it this morning, but one of the ones in the mix is a song called To the Ends of the Earth. And the words go, Jesus, I believe in you, and I would go to the ends of the earth for you. Now, we sing it, and it's a catchy tune, and we stand there, and yeah, Jesus, I would go to the ends of the earth for you. And in a sense, that's easy to say, because it's a worship song, and we sing it, and we like it. But I wonder what would happen if Jesus actually showed up in that moment and said, okay, Afghanistan. Okay, Tanzania. Okay, Kazakhstan. You know, I mean, we sing, Jesus, I would go to the ends of the earth. And what if he actually put his finger on it? And we say, oh, no, Jesus, I'm just singing a worship song. I'm just, you know, I'm not talking about real places, Jesus. Just singing the worship songs here. I'm just in church. I'm in the moment. Just leave me alone. But, you know, this is the problem, is our confession of Jesus as Lord is often very disconnected from the realities of our life. And it's easy. I don't want to undermine this, but it is kind of easy to make the big, general, sweeping statements. Jesus, I surrender all to you. Jesus, I lay my life down. I want to be sold out for Jesus, whatever that means. I want to be on fire for God, whatever that means. We're kind of like Christian platitudes 
just roll off our tongues and we put our hands up at a meeting and we go forward at another meeting and we make a recommitment at another meeting and I want Jesus to be everything in my life. But what difference does that make tomorrow? How does that actually rub up against the rock-solid, gritty realities of the stuff that you are wrestling with right now in your life? I've got a friend who's a pastor and he told me this great story of something that happened in his church a few weeks ago. It was a family at the back and they had a baby. The baby was making quite a bit of noise through the service. And I don't know what, what was going on, but the baby was maybe crying or playing with some keys or something. And uh, at a certain point, there, there was a guy sitting towards the back and he turned around to this family and said, shh. So they quietened down for a while, but then the baby kept on making noise. So the guy turned around again. And this happened three times. The guy turned around told them off. The family got quite offended by this, and they walked out. And as they walked out, the husband of the family went up to this guy who had told them to be quiet and said to him, you've offended my wife. And the guy said, I don't give a bleep. You know, like fill in the blank, bleep, with a swear word. <laughs> loud enough for other people to hear. Like there were eyewitnesses to this event. <laughs> the best thing, actually, about the story is that the sermon was on loving your neighbor. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, that is like the definition of irony. It's great. This guy was disturbed from watching a sermon on love your neighbor, so he failed to love his neighbor over here. Oh, man. But doesn't it show the way that we can, we can live in this disconnected reality? Like, we, we love to affirm this stuff, and we love to talk, many of us, about Jesus is Lord and all that that means. But it just sometimes doesn't actually relate at all to the actual situations that we bump up against in the small and trivial stuff of life. Maybe it's more helpful to think about particular areas of life and making Jesus Lord of those. So rather than saying Jesus is Lord, maybe we need to say, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your TV viewing? What would it mean to make Jesus Lord of your movie going? I don't, I don't mean to be prude and rigid and all this, but at a certain point, we've got to get down to a specific level of life and ask, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord in this area? As long as we leave it in the realm of generalities, we haven't really got very far. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord of your finances? What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord of your interactions with your spouse or your flatmates, friends? When you bring it down into those areas, then we start to see the ways in which actually Jesus is not really Lord at all in a lot of areas of life. Now, please don't hear this in a kind of legalistic way. Just behave yourself and try harder. That's not what this is about. All this has got to come out of what we talked about last week, of finding ourselves as the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter. If you just go out and you try harder to shape up and get your life together so that you please Jesus, you're dead in the water. But if you find yourself as the prodigal child in the arms of the father. And, and from that place of deep security in the arms of God, then you say, now, how can I draw on the strength of Jesus to make him the Lord of this particular area? Then you're on the right track. And so I just want to encourage you, as we finish, just to run a little inventory of your life and think, are there any areas right now where if I'm honest with myself, Jesus is not really Lord. And I can confess him and I can read that scripture passage and I can say the Apostles' Creed and I love Jesus as the Lord, 
But to be honest, I have a harder time saying Jesus is my Lord right now when I look at this relationship or I look at this habit or I look at this way that I'm thinking. Is Jesus Lord of your self-talk? That's a searching question for some of you. Is Jesus Lord of the way you are talking about yourself in your head and the record that's going round and round and round? Because he longs to be Lord even of that. If there's an area of life that God's putting his finger on, I want it. there's always two paths to us. Hey, one is the path of self-pity and guilt and condemnation. You feel overwhelmed and you feel depressed. That's not a helpful path. Resist that path. Don't just drift into self-pity. God is a God of grace. And as soon as you name that thing, that area of life, his grace just floods in again. Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So name that area to God. Just get it out in the open. Bring it out into the light and say, Jesus, there's this thing. There's this area in my life. Honestly, you are not Lord of this. This life, this, this, this thing is not submitted. It's not yet surrendered to you. Name that thing and lay it down, but in a specific way. Don't leave it. Please, please, please don't leave this in the realm of Christian platitudes. Don't leave this in the realm of bumper sticker slogans that we say to God to try and make everything all right. Get down to the reality of what this actually means for you and commit. What is the change that God might be asking you to make in your life if Jesus is to become Lord of that area? Maybe it means giving something up. It may. Maybe it means sacrificing something. Maybe it means introducing something new. It's not always getting rid of, getting rid of, getting rid of in life. A lot of the Christian life is about bringing in something new, planting something new establishing a fresh practice, fresh rhythm of life, fresh discipline, perhaps, fresh way of thinking. What is it that Jesus, as Lord, might be wanting to plant in your life? Establish something new in a relationship, new way of speaking, new way of thinking, new way of acting. What would it mean? What would, the change, what would, this, what would that first step look like if you are to make Jesus Lord in a practical way? And I ask you to draw on the strength of Jesus today in making that commitment and being courageous enough to follow through on it in the week ahead. Let's name Jesus as our Lord, the Lord of eternity past, the eternal Son of God, the one who brought the world into being, the one who sustains and upholds all things, the one who stands at the end of creation, welcoming it home, and one day welcoming all creation to himself. Let's confess Jesus as the Lord, but let's not leave it there. Let's not leave Jesus in the realm of being the Lord and fail to make him our Lord, my Lord. Let's ask ourselves and allow the Spirit to shine His searchlight into our lives to ask us, what does it mean? What change might it make for us to truly be able to confess Jesus as our Lord and our Savior? Let's pray. <clears throat> I want to pray for you this morning specifically if right now God is just touching an area of life for you and God chooses these times often to just bring gentle conviction of His Spirit into your life. And you may be in that space right now where in the course of this service, in the course of this message, you know that God is putting His finger on something and you can try to squeeze that voice and you can try to distract yourself with other things, but you know in your heart of hearts right now God's just gently putting His finger on something. He's saying that thing, that habit. I want to be Lord of that. I want you to surrender that. And you know the change that's going to require. You know the step that needs to be taken. You know that that's not going to be easy. I want to pray for you right now. God, I pray 
that you would release the power of your spirit into the life of every person here that you're bringing under conviction. God, you don't just bring us under conviction to leave us to our own devices. God, you're shining the light of your spirit into our lives, but only to give us grace to equip us for the lives that you call us to lead. So now, God, I pray for every person here who's just sitting under the conviction of your spirit now. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them the courage not to squirm, not to try and struggle free of it, not to try and push the voice away, but just to open themselves up to it, just to relax and open their heart to whatever it is you might be saying, whatever it is you might be speaking, just to allow you to work on us, to allow you to work in our lives. And God, for these people, I pray that you would now give them the strength of your spirit to step out in faith in in some new directions in life new way of thinking or speaking or acting, the newness that needs to come. God, we pray for the strength to break old habits. Lord, things of our flesh that just need to die today, we just lay those down. God, just crucify that flesh in us. Why do we keep going back and doing the very thing we hate to do over and over and over again? But thank you, God, that as we do, you give us more grace. Your grace just abounds and abounds and abounds. But God, give us strength to kill those old habits. And to start some new practices and habits and fresh ways of living in our lives. Where we really live under your lordship, under your loving oversight. Jesus, when we sing these songs, when we say these words, we want them to rise up as a true expression of our heart. Not just something we say because we happen to be in church on a Sunday. May the words of our heart, the meditations that we reflect on, the words that we speak, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.